I was asked by one of the brethren this week, how come you haven't said anything during the discussion times that we've had a couple of sessions here? And uh, I told him, I said, you know, really, um, Bible translations have been no problem for us in Denver. Uh, I have about 30 or 35, I haven't counted them exactly, I think it's, it's over 30 translations that I have on my bookshelf. And I refer to them every now and then. Uh, I have told our people in the Berean church in Denver that um, the Holy Spirit has preserved the Word of God all of these centuries in spite of men's failures and shortcomings in translating. And you know, we're not worried at all about translations out our way. All of our people have heard me say time and again that all translations are man-made and men are fallible and they do imperfect things. And consequently, we have no perfect translation in our language. We've heard enough about that. I'm not going to preach about that. But uh, the brethren wanted me to declare where I stand. And I assure you that uh, in our book room, in, our, in connection with our services at church, we have... The authorized version, of course, we carry the old Schofield Bibles. We also have the amplified version, and we also have the New American Standard. Some people don't like them, but I think they're excellent. And they're really helpful for me, and our people enjoy using them as Bible study helps. We got some folks who really love to study the scriptures, and uh, we rejoice in that. So that's my word that I didn't say earlier. Kind of strange to have the keynote address at the end of the week, isn't it? Well, I, uh, Pastor Bergner, he explained to you, I'm sure, that the reason I wasn't here Sunday was because my wife has just recently uh, been told that she has to have insulin. She has been a borderline diabetic for some time, and it, just the last week or little ten days that she found out she has to have uh, insulin shots, and the doctor says you can't leave home till we're stabilized. And this, we found that out just before it was ready to take off for Cedar Lake. We were all packed and ready to go, but I didn't want to leave her alone. And so I came alone. It seems really strange to be here without my wife. She hasn't missed once in, my, must be 30 years now. And uh, uh, we are thankful that we could get away anyway. And so we're here, and our brother Bergner asked if I wouldn't bring the message that I was going to bring Sunday morning. Let's have a moment of prayer before we start. Our Father, we thank Thee once again for the privilege of looking into the Scriptures together. 
We pray that the Holy Spirit may be our real teacher here tonight. May Christ be honored. We pray in his name. Amen. The text and topic chosen for the keynote address, as you know in the program, was Stand Fast. And I understand that our brother Kazonis, with short notice, was asked to fill in in my place, and I sure appreciate that. But we will bring a message which will perhaps be a little different than our brother Kazonis brought Sunday morning. The theme, Here We Stand. What a timely theme at this time. I was here at the first conference 20 years ago, and I haven't forgotten the afternoon, in fact all day, when the BBF came into existence, November 1968. Actually, it was 67, I believe, because our first conference was in 68. But I remember it was in November. And we were at Grace Bible Church in Riverdale, Illinois, about a dozen of us sitting around the table in the lower auditorium at Riverdale. Many of the men that were sitting around that table 20 years ago are gone. Some have gone to be with the Lord. Others are gone for other reasons. Just a few of us left from that beginning. And how we rejoice in how the Lord has directed and led. And I have said time and again that even though we've had a few crises in the history of this organization, if it's of the Lord, it won't fail. If it isn't of the Lord, it ought to fail. And uh, I know that the Lord is going to see Berean Bible Fellowship through. And Brother Ivan, be assured that the Lord willing, I will not be leaving. I will be here as long as the Lord lets me. The BBF then was born 20 years ago. 20-year youngster, as it were. And how we thank the Lord for the Lord's blessing in so many ways through the years. And the exhortation in Philippians 1.27, let's turn there. Paul exhorts the believer as follows. Only let your conversation or your behavior as it becometh the gospel of Christ. One translation has it, your behavior as a citizen of heaven. I think it's saying about the same thing. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I think it's well to define our terms, and I should define what the uh, apostle means by the term stand fast. The word fast is translated firm also. It means firm, steadfast. Some have translated it, hold your ground, be resolute, 
unwavering, all saying about the same thing. And the Apostle Paul sums it all up in Ephesians 6.13, where we read, having done all to stand. Three areas of the believer's life is summed up in Paul's use of the little term, stand fast. And I've checked the verses and here they are. Number one, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. We'll come back to Philippians before we're through. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where the apostle Paul says, stand fast in the faith, we have learned that when the article appears before the word faith, it very often is referring to a body of truth or doctrine, the faith. And Paul says, stand fast in the faith. That's talking about Bible doctrine, Paul's doctrine. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, we read, Stand firm and hold fast the traditions or the instructions as ye have been taught. Taught by the apostle, no doubt. We sometimes think that traditions are always bad. Not necessarily. The word translated trans, uh, tradition here is referring to the instructions, the teaching, which the apostle had given the Thessalonian saints. And he urges them to stand firm and hold fast to these traditions or these instructions. Referring, of course, either to Paul's letter that he was writing, or that he had written, I should say, in 1 Thessalonians, and now in the second letter, the second chapter, verse 15, he says, stand fast, or stand firm and hold fast. Sometimes, as we've heard already this week, doctrine is minimized and uh, belittled by some. I've heard people say it isn't important what you believe, it's how you live that really counts. But I want to remind everyone, and I think all of us know this, don't we? That what you determine, what you believe determines how you live. A lot of people are careless livers as believers. And it's because they haven't believed or seen or understood or practiced the truth. What you Believe determines how you live. That's a very important statement. Paul refers to sound doctrine at least six times that I found. In 1 Timothy 4.13, he instructs Timothy to give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And it's interesting that it has a definite article. I've been ridiculed a little bit by some of the brethren who think that I refer to the definite article too often. No, uh, let me say that it's very important. I hope all of you who are Bible students know that uh, very often our English translations have left the article out where it belongs. 
and by the same token, sometimes they put it in where it doesn't belong. I'd say it's very, very important, and it uh, teaches specific truth whenever it appears in the text. Paul refers to sound doctrine six times, and uh, in his last words before he became a martyr, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, I have kept or guarded the faith. Stand fast in the faith, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. That's the first area of the Christian life where we should stand fast. The second reference that I'd call your attention to is Galatians 5.1, where God's people, members of the body of Christ, are exhorted to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Galatians 5, verse 1. Let me read the whole verse. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage or of slavery. You see, the Corinthian believers were being persuaded to go back to the law. Now, in my Christian experience, I was saved in a little church back in Minnesota. You might expect anyone by the name of Johnson to come from Minnesota, either there or Sweden. And uh, I remember that uh, some of the dear saints there said, wonderful to be saved by grace. And they believed that. But then they would go back to the law to live the Christian life. And that's the very thing that Paul is warning of here in Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Liberty is freedom. A once for all liberation. The word was often used referring to the freeing of slaves in the slave market. And this is the way the apostle uses it here, in a spiritual sense. Stand fast in the liberty that is ours in Christ, wherewith Christ has made us free. There are several aspects of the believer's liberty in Christ. And for that blessed truth, we turn you to Romans 8. Every now and then somebody will tell me, where do you turn in your Bible to show people how they can know that they're saved? Certainly Romans 8 is a key chapter, isn't it? Romans 8 will point us to real scriptural assurance. Oftentimes, in the years that I used to travel and teach young people, boys and girls, Every now and then I would talk to some personally, and I would ask them, how do you know you're saved? And very often I got this answer. My mother told me. My Sunday school teacher told me. The pastor told me. 
And I have tried since I've been pastor to impress upon our teachers the importance of showing our boys and girls that they can know that they're saved because God's Word says so. And I want to remind all of our grown-ups that are here, you can know you're saved because God's Word says so. I have often said there are three ways in which you can know you're saved. By the testimony of the Scriptures, number one. Two, by the testimony of the witness of the Spirit, Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the third way, the testimony of a changed life. You know where I learned that? When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute 50 years ago. Longer than that, 60. I never forgot it. The testimony of the scriptures, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Romans 5, 1 and 2, Titus 3, 5, Romans 4, 5, my, there are just any number of verses. And I'm repeating them now so that some of you who are a little shaky about your assurance can have something to stand on. The testimony of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the testimony of a changed life. Very often, 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we heard the youngsters say here is used in that sense. But I'm thinking of what John said. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Amen. And do you know, when you're saved, the Lord pours the love of God into your heart, not the physical heart, into your innermost being, Romans 5. And when the love of God is poured into our heart, it automatically is manifested to others. You don't have to go around and say, I love you, I love you. You don't have to say that at all. Your actions and the things you do will prove to others that the love of God is in your heart. I'm sure that's true. And though John said it, especially to the tribulation saints, I know where it belongs dispensationally, but I want to say that there's a truth there which is interdispensational. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Think of that. That's how you can know you're saved. And here in Romans 8, the assurance chapter, we have reference to being liberated, being freed, set free from the bondage of sin. And the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, wants us to be rejoicing and standing fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Here in Romans 8, verse 2, free from the law of sin and death, 
Here's another sermon, but I'll just throw it in here. Verse 16, free from the power of the sin nature. And in verse 21, free from the bondage of corruption. How wonderful. That's real freedom. And the apostle in Galatians 5.1 wants us to be free and stand fast in the liberty which is ours in Christ. Every true believer is freed from the law of sin and death, but some return to the merit system to try to live the Christian life, as we said earlier. And by doing this, they frustrate the grace of God. While it is true that we are to stand fast in our liberty in Christ, Paul warns also at the end of chapter 18, uh, chapter 8. Wait a minute, that's Galatians, isn't it? It's Galatians 5. At the end of Galatians 5, he says, Use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh. How important. Sure, we're to enjoy our liberty, and we're to stand fast in that liberty that is ours in Christ. But use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh. Then in Philippians 1.27, that's the text assigned to me. But I felt we needed to look at these others in connection with that verse. Philippians 1.27. Here we have standing fast in what? In unity. Stand fast in one spirit. One is unity, isn't it? And one mind or soul or heart, referring to the inner man, the inside person, I used to say when I taught the children. The inside person. When I look at you and you look at me, we see each other's outside person. And I say that for the benefit of our children that are here. I see the way you look to these eyes. I see your outside person. But do you know what? When God looks at us, he sees our inside person. He sees us like we really are. Too often, even the Lord's people put on a mask. They masquerade to be something which they are not. And uh, I fear that that's too often true among the Lord's people. They pretend to be what they're not. In the vernacular, they say, he's a phony. I often remind our young people at camp, don't be a phony. Don't say you're one thing when you're really something else. The Lord doesn't want us to put on a mask. We're to stand fast in one spirit with one mind. The inner man, the inside person, striving together for or with, one translation has with, the faith of the gospel. 
One is the number for unity, as we suggested. Oftentimes, unity is confused with union. Grace Gospel Publishers has a little track, which maybe you saw on the rack when it was up during the week. Union and unity, or union or unity. They're not the same. My watch here is union. It has a number of things on it. It has metal. It has plastic. It has some gold paint, I think. Whatever it is. But there are several different things put together here to make the watch. That's union. But when I hold up this card, that is unity. One thing. That may not be a perfect illustration. Somebody might point out to me that even paper has things put together. But you see what I'm trying to say. Union and unity are not the same. Union is defined in the dictionary as the joining of two or more entities. While unity is an organic oneness, a living oneness. The word unity is found three times in our English Bible. Once in the Old Testament, Psalm 133, verse 1. Maybe we ought to turn to that. Here is the use of unity in the Old Testament. And I think it's the only place where it's found as far as I could tell. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's an interdispensational truth too, isn't it? And how wonderful it would be to experience that. It's found twice in the book of Ephesians. We look at those verses. And though the word is only found three times in our Bibles, the doctrine of unity is taught in many places. Let's look at Ephesians 4. You're very familiar with this passage, I'm sure. Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 3. Endeavoring to keep or to preserve or to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is the bond of peace? I think it's love, spoken of in verse 2. The bond of peace. Love is the glue, if you please. The adhesive, that which binds together believers in the unity of the Spirit. Now the unity of the Spirit, as all of us know, is not something that we're called upon to make. 
certainly none of us could make the unity of the Spirit. That's already made. The Holy Spirit has made that unity. And though we may differ in many areas of Bible truth, we can all enjoy and rejoice in the unity of the Spirit, and we ought to practice it and endeavor to guard it, keep it, preserve it at any cost. And that's what the BBF has in its doctrinal statement. I remember when we adopted the doctrinal statement which we publish now and which is a part of this organization. We all agreed that it should be just what it is today. The founding board, without one dissenting vote, agreed that we should adopt the doctrinal statement that we have now and is available at the BBF table. I want to suggest to all the pastors, and there are not many of them here that are left from our conferences, we many have gone home, but those who may be still here, or any of you key lay folks, I would suggest that you take some quantities of the doctrinal statement and um, bring them home and pass them out. You know, people so often ask us, what do you believe? I'd say, here it is. Our ushers at home are instructed to anybody who asks, what does this church believe? Hand them the BBF doctrinal statement. And they do. We have it on in our book rack right by the door where people go out every single Sunday. I think that's a good idea, and I would suggest that you do that. I think there are still some back there. I'm sure I see the table is still up. The unity of the Spirit. Now let me read the verses. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The unity of the Spirit. Notice that there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven unities. And like I said, this unity has already been made and we're to guard it and preserve it. Ephesians 4.13, down to the 13th verse, the word unity is found again. And these are the three places where you'll find that word in our English Bible. Ephesians 4.13, well let's read verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He's talking about the gifts to the church in verse 11. Then verse 13, till we all come or arrive at the unity of the faith 
Now, the unity of the Spirit and the unity of the faith are not the same, are they? The unity of the Spirit has already been made. The unity of the faith is something we ought to all strive for. But you know what? I don't think it'll happen in this life. Some have told me that they believed that you could have the unity of the faith in this life. I doubt it. William E. Peach, and I think I've said that from, said uh, what he said from this platform before, but I'll repeat it. William E. Peach, who, an evangelist of a former day, some of you Chicagoans will remember him because he was very active around Chicago. His son was a missionary in Japan, Timothy Peach. William E. Peach used to say very often, and I heard him, I never forgot that little statement. He said, you know, the unity of the faith is something that won't happen till the rapture. He said, on the way up, there'd be a riot if it wasn't for the fact that we're all going to be changed. <laughs> and we'll all believe the same thing, won't we then? What a day that's going to be. I hope it's soon. The unity of the faith. It awaits the rapture. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. What a blessed hope. We'll experience the unity of the faith at that time. But now let's look at the unity referred to in our text. Philippians 1.27 Here we have another unity, though the word unity is not used, the word one is used, and that's referring to unity. Let me suggest that we have here the unity of purpose. Notice what it says. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, or soul, or heart, one inner man, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The unity of purpose. We don't hear a lot about that. But I think that's what the apostle is teaching in this verse. The inside person, the seat of the intellect and the emotions and the will. Those are three more good words which I learned as a Bible school student. The intellect 
the emotions, and the will. And anyone who's going to be saved has to be moved, first of all, in their intellect. You have to know about it. You have to agree that this is for you. It has to touch your emotions. And finally, it has to touch your will. I have taught and I believe very strongly that faith is in three parts. Knowledge, assent, and appropriation. And those three truths fit perfectly with the intellect, the emotions, and the will. Before anyone can be saved, there has to be a knowledge of the gospel, of the truth. You have to know it. Many people have an intellectual knowledge of the gospel. They have the first part, they have knowledge. Some have gone a little further than that and they say, I know that what God's word says and what I know from the scriptures is true. And I agree that it's for me. Assent. Many people give assent to the gospel. Some of you have dealt with relatives and friends. And uh, you've told them about how to be saved. They have a knowledge of the gospel. And that's important. Some of you have noted that some of these dear ones have given assent to the gospel. But they haven't finally appropriated the truth for themselves. And I think saving faith, and there's three kinds of faith too, we won't go into that. But we're talking about saving faith. And saving faith is knowledge, assent, and appropriation. Remember those three words. I remember when I was first saved as a young Christian, I thought that the reason people didn't trust the Lord was because they were stubborn. I sure changed my mind. And I realized that people who are unsaved are blind to the truth and they can't even begin to understand what we're talking about till the Holy Spirit gives them first of all knowledge and enlightenment in their mind. Paul wrote Romans 10, 17, Faith cometh by hearing the word of God. I've had folks say to me, I'd like to have more faith. Faith isn't something you can work up. And you can't pray it down either. I'm sure I've said that from this platform. All oh, people want to have faith and they try so hard to have faith. And I always remind them, faith cometh by hearing the word of God. I said, you want more faith? 
get your Bible out and begin to read and I tell them where to start. Paul is talking about unity of purpose. He's talking about one spirit and one mind. The inside person, the intellect, the emotions, the will. And we are called upon as members of the body of Christ to strive together. That word striving, by the way, is an athletic term as I understand it. And Paul here is urging the Lord's people to strive together as a team and stand fast in unity of purpose, unity of mind and spirit and the inner person. In 2 Timothy 2.5, hold your finger in Philippians. We'll come right back to it before we close. 2 Timothy 2.5, I jotted down in my note here. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Here he's referring to and comparing with comparing the Christian life with the games, the athletic games, where teams strove together to win the prize. And he says, if a man strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. Back to our Philippian text, striving together for the faith of the gospel or with the faith of the gospel. The faith, referring to a body of doctrine, of course, the doctrine of the gospel. How important it is to stand fast in the right teaching, the right doctrine. And in verse 28 he adds, and in nothing terrified. I'm reading Philippians 1.28. And in nothing terrified to your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Nothing terrified by your adversaries. Oh, sometimes we think that our adversaries are flesh and blood, but we're reminded by the apostle in Ephesians 6 that our adversaries are not flesh and blood, but our principalities and powers. And I want to say that personally, I believe that Satan would try everything and use every kind of method to make us ineffective in the ministry of the gospel of grace. He can't take away our salvation and he can't get us to compromise so he'll attack us some other place. 
and in another area of the Christian life. And we've seen it through the years. I'm old enough so that I can remember when I was first saved as a teenager. And it's been my privilege to spend many years in the ministry. And the Lord's been good to me. I'm living on borrowed time. But you know, the Lord has us here, all of us, for a purpose. And we ought to fulfill that purpose. And in doing so, we are to stand fast. And here in Philippians 1.27, especially stand fast in the unity of purpose what we're trying to do as we near the end of this dispensation how can we stand fast Philippians 4 verse 1 just turn the page Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. There is much disunity by standing fast in the flesh. And too often that's true about the Lord's people. They're standing fast in the flesh. We are to stand fast, where? In the Lord. Stand fast in doctrine. Stand fast in Christian liberty. And stand fast in unity. May we stand fast as this conference comes to a close and we say goodbye. Some of you that are here tonight and this week may not be here. None of us have any promise of being here next year, do we? Some of us made reservations for next year. The Antichrist may use those. Who knows? And yet if the Lord permits us to be here, there will be some who are sitting in the service tonight who will be missing next year. Will it be you? I trust that all of us realize how short the time is and that we need to really make the time count. I think when you get older, and I see a lot of older folks in our audience, as we get older, all of us, time just flies, doesn't it? Just isn't enough hours in the day to do all that requires your attention and that ought to be done and it's frustrating to want to do so much and then unable to do it when you want to do it I trust that all of us by God's grace will stand fast in the short time we have here and may we make our lives count for the Lord in getting out the gospel. I take it that most everybody here is saved. 
and yet there might be somebody who doesn't know for sure about your salvation. If you're not sure about it, let me say that you can know. You can know right tonight. And you know, wouldn't that be a great way to end this week? If somebody trusted Christ, if you're not sure about where you are before the Lord, you can believe the gospel that Christ died for your sins and was buried and arose again. And the work is finished. And you can be saved by trusting in that blessed Lord Jesus Christ. May you do it tonight. Shall we close in a moment of prayer? Our Father, we thank Thee for this time together. May the Holy Spirit seal the truth to each heart. Help us not to push it off on someone else, but may we recognize it for ourselves. And may all of us senior citizens here in the service tonight remember that the time is very short for us. Help us to make it really count. And by Thy grace, may we stand fast in the Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.